And good morning once again. Can I uh, have you turn with me in your Bibles to the Gospel of John chapter 5? And if you're new with us, we welcome you and let you know we are working our way through John's Gospel here at Calvary on Sunday morning. And a couple weeks ago, we began a two-part study which we've entitled The Sabbath Controversy. We have been studying John's Gospel, and as we uh, were making our way through, we came to chapter 5, to the story of a man that Jesus healed on the Sabbath. This man had been lame for 38 years, and Jesus heals him, but it was on the Sabbath, and now you would think that was a good thing, right? That a guy who had been crippled for 38 years was healed miraculously, but uh, not so with the religious leaders of Israel. Uh, it created a firestorm of hatred towards Jesus, uh, you know, on behalf of this, these religious leaders. In fact, we see it in verse 16. For this reason, the Jews, the Jewish leadership, persecuted Jesus and sought to kill him because he had done these things on the Sabbath. Now, as we mentioned last time, the reason the Jewish people were so protective of the Sabbath, the reason it was so sacred to them, was because it was a sign of the covenant that God made with Moses and the children of Israel when they came out of Egypt, and as Moses went up on Mount Sinai to receive the uh, law, the Ten Commandments primarily, and uh, God gave to them the Sabbath as a sign of this covenant they were entering into, where they would now be the Jewish people, God's chosen people, and uh, a holy nation unto him. And uh, the Sabbath was the one thing that separated the Jewish people from every other nation on the face of the earth. Think about it. Uh, to be an agrarian culture and take one day off a week was unheard of in the ancient world, especially uh, during harvest time. When time was limited, you had to get those crops in, yet by faith they trusted God would, you know, give them the time they needed, but they still took a day off the Sabbath to uh, worship Him and so on. That was, that was unheard of in the ancient world and made the Jewish people absolutely, absolutely unique among the peoples of the world. And so one of the reasons the Jewish leaders hated Jesus so much and wanted to kill him was because they believed he was some kind of a troublemaker or renegade, uh, rabble-rouser, whatever you want to call him. Uh, Why did they believe that? Because he was violating the Sabbath all the time. He healed this guy in the Sabbath. That was against Sabbath law, okay? Uh, not only that, he was encouraging others to break the Sabbath. I uh, told this guy to get up, take his bed, and walk away, right? And uh, so they saw Jesus as somebody who was trying to undermine the Sabbath, the very sign of the Mosaic Covenant God made with Israel, and therefore they thought he was trying to destroy the covenant. Now, it wasn't just they had this pure zeal for God that they were so worried about. They believed if Jesus somehow brought down Judaism, the Mosaic Covenant, then, of course, their power and authority as religious leaders would be gone. And so that was really what they were upset about, okay? And uh, so they, um, they unleashed their fury against the Lord Jesus because they believed he was trying to destroy the, uh, the covenant by violating constantly Sabbath law. As we said last time, uh, it got so bad at one point that Jesus in Matthew 5, 17 said, look, I haven't come to destroy the law. I've come to fulfill it. And Jesus was the only one as the Son of God who could have fulfilled the law perfectly. Nobody can get to heaven by keeping commandments. Now, we'll talk about that more in a moment. But Jesus was born sinless. All of us are born with sin in our souls. We're 
uh, were uh, descendants of Adam. The sin of Adam passed on to all of us, right? But uh, Jesus was born without an earthly father. God the Father was his father. He was born sinless, virgin birth, and uh, lived a completely sinless life. He was the only one who kept the law perfectly. Now, when they claimed or they accused Jesus of being a lawbreaker, primarily violating Sabbath law, as we said last time, understand Jesus never violated Sabbath law as God intended it. He only violated their interpretation of Sabbath law. When God originally gave the Sabbath uh, to Israel, it was a very simple concept. You work your field six days a week on the seventh day, the Sabbath, Saturday, you rest it. You rest it. The principle was an easy one to understand. Take a day off, one day off a week so your body could rest, recuperate, your servants could rest, recuperate, your animals, and so on. And while you're, while you're at it during this one day of rest, uh, spend some quality time with God. Now, if you go back into the law, the written law, uh, you can read about this in Exodus 20 when God gave the Ten Commandments, and in particular the Sabbath. I counted 60 words in the English. It was a very simple, succinct law. 60 words in English amounted to the Sabbath law. However, the rabbis took a simple concept and turned it into an unbearable burden. As they began to interpret what God meant. They didn't know what God said, but you know, here's what he meant. Okay, When they began to interpret what God meant when he said they were to rest on the Sabbath, it led to 24 chapters in the Talmud being devoted to the concept of what constituted Sabbath rest. We said this last time. Everything from you couldn't wear your false teeth in the Sabbath, you'd be carrying a burden, to you know, you couldn't buy or sell or start a fire. You couldn't even look in a mirror on the Sabbath unless you see a gray hair be tempted to pull it out. That's work by the Sabbath. It's crazy. That's only a few out of hundreds, if not thousands of prohibitions. Okay? The Sabbath was supposed to be a day of rest. But uh, the scribes and Pharisees had littered it down with so many rules and regulations the people dreaded this. It wasn't a day of rest. It was the biggest burden of the entire week. What should have been the greatest blessing was the greatest burden. So Jesus, during his earthly ministry, never violated or broke Sabbath law, only their faulty man-made interpretations of what constituted Sabbath law. Besides, as we said last time, God in human form, which is what Jesus was, God in human form, well, Jesus was the one who gave the Sabbath to Israel in the first place. And as such, he was the one, the only one who had, and I'm talking about the Trinity now, who had the authority to suspend Sabbath law or abrogate it altogether if he, if he chose to. Even as Jesus stated clearly in Mark 2.28, the Son of Man is also Lord of the Sabbath. And so last time, we looked at the first two of three points in our outline the sabbath law and then the sabbath lord now that was informational as we said last time we we only had time to lay out the information about the sabbath and so on and so forth um that's doctrinal that's what doctrine is it's information however for doctrine and i'm thinking now the word of god for it to become living and powerful in your life it has to be applied has to be applied. And guys, the order is no accident. First comes the information, and then the application. You say, well, of course, isn't that a little obvious? It should be. 
But today you have so many pastors and teachers who I've seen them on TV, I've heard them on the radio, they'll open the Bible, read a part of a verse or a full verse, and then begin to make immediate application to the audience without giving any contextual information, no context, no uh, interpretation or explanation. They just read and just key in on a couple words and just make immediate application to the lives of those who are people with those who are there. And guys, that is the, the worst thing you can do with the Word of God. Because if you yank a scripture out of its context, you can basically make it to say anything. Make it to say anything. Without knowing and understanding, listen, what God is saying, context is everything, why he's saying it, and to whom he's saying it, well, it often leads to wrong conclusions and ultimately to, fault, to uh, faulty applications, which has damaged a lot of people in our society today, Christians now, okay, who go to churches where, I don't know if the pastor thinks that getting out, uh, you know, doing some studying and finding out historical context, some of the uh, some of the language issues, words, what they mean, uh, the nuances, uh, uh, understanding what God is actually saying before you apply it. I mean, this is all very important. It's, it's hermeneutics 101. Hermeneutics is the science of Bible interpretation. When I went to Bible college, I took a class on hermeneutics, and here's what we learned. A text without a context is a pretext. This is the problem today. And this is why so many Christians are claiming things God never promised them. So a lot of things God promised Israel uniquely in the Old Testament that don't carry over into the New Testament. Yet, you have a lot of Christians who just get in there, read a, a, something, a promise of God, yank it out of context, apply it to themselves immediately, and expect God to bring it to pass. And when he doesn't, God's not faithful. Well, maybe you haven't been faithful to understand what he's actually saying. And to whom he made that promise. A lot of folks have been led astray today because of shoddy, shallow teaching. So we spent a whole message last time carefully giving you the background as to what the Sabbath was all about, why God gave it, and how he intended the Sabbath to be understood and applied by the Jewish people in the practice of their lives from week to week. That then brings us to the application. I've called the first point the Sabbath law, second point the Sabbath Lord. If you weren't here, go back and listen online, if you will. The third point, which is basically the application, although it does have some teaching uh, involved in it too, we're calling the Sabbath lesson. The Sabbath lesson. As we have just seen, Jesus referred to himself as the Lord of the Sabbath in Mark 2.28, which, guys, was an inescapable claim of deity on the part of the Lord Jesus something we will look at uh, in detail starting next week in chapter 5. Very important. Some, be, some scholars believe chapter 5 is the most important chapter in John's entire gospel. Um, I, I can't say they're wrong, but boy, there's so many other incredible chapters. But from a doctrinal standpoint, as far as the deity and work of Jesus Christ, they, they might be right. It's that important. We'll start getting into that next time. But here, today, we want to make application of what we've already been studying. And um, right here, there's an important lesson about the Sabbath that Jesus, and later on, Paul the Apostle, taught that not only did Jesus, as the Lord of the Sabbath, institute the Sabbath, 
He himself, listen, is the Sabbath. He himself is the Sabbath. Something he alluded to when he said in Matthew eleven twenty eight, Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you what? Rest. Well, we Gentiles read that, and we just gloss right over it. Yeah, rest, good. If you're a Jew listening to Jesus say that, immediately you would have thought of the Sabbath. Because that's what the Sabbath was all about, rest, right? And what is he saying? Look, I know you're weighted down with all kinds of burdens on the Sabbath. It's not even what I intended it to be. That's okay. You're going to come to me now. I'm going to give you rest. I'm your Sabbath rest, is what the Lord was saying. Jesus is the Sabbath rest for the people of God under the new covenant. And that's because under the new covenant, we are no longer under Old Testament law, including Sabbath law. And yet, there are many Christians today who are Sabbatarians. Sabbatarians. In other words, they believe that Christians are still under the moral law, the Ten Commandments, and therefore we are commanded as Christians now, we are commanded to keep the Sabbath, which they claim for Christians is not Saturday like it was in the Old Testament, it's Sunday. Now, if you believe that, if you believe we're still under Sabbath law, right? The law that God gave Moses from Mount Sinai, what gives you the right to be changing anything? If you really believe that, you better be taking Saturday as your Sabbath. Because who, who gives us the authority to say, well, no, Lord, you know, we know that we're still under Sabbath law, but, you know, and you said Saturday was the, was the Sabbath in the Old Testament. We're going to make it Sunday. You don't do that, right? You don't do that. But this idea has been around for, around for a long time uh, in different church circles, uh, the Calvinist and Reformed circles primarily. But it's also gaining acceptance and all in movements like the Hebrew, Hebrew Roots Movement, which you can Google and read on your own. But I do know of one Reformed pastor who believes that Christians are still under the Sabbath law and uh, feels guilty when he takes his family out to a restaurant after church on Sunday because that's the Sabbath, and he feels guilty because he's making the cooks and the waiters and waitresses uh, work on the violate the Sabbath. But he still goes out. They still go out to eat, but he feels bad about it. Okay? Yeah, well, I feel bad that we're making them sin on the Sabbath, work on the Sabbath, but you know, we still want our burger, so you know, whatever. What about this? What about this? Is it true that Christians are still under Sabbath law? Now, as we've already pointed out in this study, in the Torah, uh, the first five books of the Bible, the books of Moses, God gave the Sabbath, listen, to Israel as a sign and a law. I won't have you turn to it, but Exodus 31, verse 16, Therefore, God is speaking, the children of Israel, makes it very clear, shall keep the Sabbath to observe the Sabbath throughout listen, their generations as a perpetual Covenant, in other words, is a, is a sign of the Mosaic Covenant. Just like uh, wedding ring, sign of the marriage covenant. Circumcision was a sign of the Abrahamic Covenant. The rainbow, a sign of the Noahic Covenant. The Mosaic Covenant had a sign too. It was the Sabbath. Uh, a covenant that God made with Israel. And therefore, they were to keep the Sabbath. Again, the Sabbath was a sign of the Mosaic Covenant, what we call the Old Covenant. And as such, it was only intended for Israel. Listen, God never gave the Sabbath as a general law for all mankind. Nowhere in the New Testament is the church ever commanded to keep the Sabbath. On the contrary, we read in Colossians 2, verses 16 and 17, 
And, and understand the context. Paul the Apostle was going around, mostly in the Gentile world, preaching the gospel. A lot of Gentiles were getting saved. Churches were starting, okay? And word was getting back to these Jewish believers, a lot of them were Pharisees and all, that the Gentiles were not keeping the law of Moses. See, they believed that you can be a Gentile and be saved, but you first had to be circumcised, convert to Judaism, keep the law of Moses, then you could believe on Christ and enter into salvation. They were called Judaizers. And Paul fought with these guys all over the ancient world. In fact, it precipitated the first church council, read Acts 15 this week. That was all about this idea that Gentiles had to be circumcised, keep the law of Moses before they could receive Christ and be saved. And Paul and Barnabas vehemently opposed that. That is not the gospel of grace which we, pre which we preach. That is not what God has, uh, has said. And they had a whole big council to decide it. And of course, they, 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 uh, they voted in favor of Paul and Barnabas. So Paul now is writing to the church at Colossae. Because the Judaizers had come in and were making these folks feel guilty. They, they weren't keeping the law of Moses. They weren't being circumcised. They weren't keeping the Sabbath and so on. So Paul, who was not there at the time, has to fire them a letter. It's called the letter to the Colossians. And in chapter 2, verses 16 and 17, Paul said, So look, don't let anyone judge you with regard to food and drink, the dietary laws that, were, that pertain to Israel. You're not under those anymore. Or regarding a festival or a new moon or Sabbaths which are a shadow of things to come, but the substance is Christ. Guys, a shadow contains no substance, but is cast by something or someone of substance. In the Old Testament, all of these laws and these uh, um, Sabbaths and feast days and so on, sacrifice, it all pointed to Jesus Christ who said very clearly in Psalm 40, verse 7, the volume of the book, it is written of me. The entire Old Testament, and of course the New, but he was talking about the Old Testament, it all pointed to Christ. Pictures, types, symbolism, ceremonies, it all pointed to Jesus. They were a shadow of what was coming. And now that Christ has come, Paul is basically saying to the Colossians, look, the substance is here. What are you hanging on the shadows for? Or what are you letting people make you feel guilty because you're not keeping Old Testament law? That was shadow stuff. Now you have the substance, Christ. He's here. And you're in him. What do you need to be fooling around with things that only point to Christ? You have Christ, is the idea, right? He fulfilled all the shadows, Jesus did, of things written in the Old Testament. Guys, that's why we are, listen, accepted by God, as the New Testament says. What do you mean we're accepted by God? Well, the Bible says we are accepted now to come into his presence, have fellowship with him, right? We are accepted now as to, to be one of his children. And of course, someday we'll be accepted into heaven where we'll live for all eternity with the Lord. We are accepted now. Listen very carefully. We are accepted by God now, not because of who we are or what we do, but because of who Jesus is and what he did. Something that Paul stated very clearly in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 6, when he said, He has made us accepted, listen, in the beloved one, Jesus Christ. We are accepted only because we are in 
Christ. Now, of course, that's another way of saying saved, right? The Bible says, I think it's 1 Corinthians 12, 13, that once we give our hearts to Christ, we are immediately placed, it's invisible, instantaneous, miraculous, into the body of Christ. We are now in Christ, right? In fact, Paul wrote an entire epistle, one of the greatest, I think, in the New Testament, the epistle to the Ephesians. He built the entire thing around two words, in Christ. How does a person get in Christ? Now that you are in Christ, what belongs to you? Because you are in Christ. Incredible. How, how are you to live now that you're in Christ? The whole thing is about being in Christ. And guys, listen to me. This is foundational for the new covenant. This is new covenant theology, okay? As Jesus fulfilled the law perfectly, and since we are in him, as the Bible says in Colossians 3, verse 3, hidden uh, with him in God, we have also fulfilled the law perfectly by virtue of being in Jesus through the new birth. Again, guys, the only reason we can approach God and be accepted by God as his children is because we are in Christ. Which means the Father doesn't really see us. Sure he does, but I'm talking now just in, in doctrinal terms. The Father, when he looks at us as we're Christians, he sees Jesus. Aren't you glad about that? Who is Jesus? What is Jesus? Well, he's perfect, sinless, blameless, righteous, holy. The Bible says, I am all those things positionally, not practically yet. I will be when the rapture happens. I get my glorified body. But right now, positionally speaking, God sees me in Christ and everything Jesus is, everything he accomplished, I'm the beneficiary of. The Father doesn't even see me, per se. He sees Christ. I'm hidden in Christ. That's why I'm accepted in the beloved one. Only way I can be accepted, because I'm in Christ, right? And guys, because Jesus fulfilled the law perfectly and now we are in him, then guess what? We have fulfilled the law in the eyes of God perfectly because we're in Christ, which means we're not obligated under law to observe the Sabbath, which is either Saturday or Sunday, whatever you want to you call it. We're not obligated by law to... Fulfill the Sabbath each week. One well-known pastor had it right when he said, and I quote, Because the Lord of the Sabbath has come, the shadow of his Sabbath rest is no longer needed or valid. The New Testament does not require Sabbath observance, but rather allows freedom as to whether or not any day is honored above others. You can read Romans 14, 5 and 6. From the days of the early church, Christians have set aside Sunday, the first day of the week, as a special day of worship, fellowship, uh, in giving offerings, because that is the day our Lord was raised from the dead. But the Lord's day is not the Christian Sabbath. I agree totally. As it was considered to be for many centuries, and still is in some groups today, end quote. So a lot of folks, and they love the Lord, I'm not putting them down. I'm just saying that they're not correct. That they, you know, they, they keep the Sabbath as if it's a law still. Now, you can keep the Sabbath as a principle. We'll talk about that at the end of this study, okay? But again, in, in Paul's day, and a lot, of, a lot of the things that Paul wrote was to counteract the teaching, uh, bad information uh, that people were getting through the Judaizers. And uh, 
Paul wrote a lot of the New Testament to combat these things. And again, in Paul's day, there were those who were trying to put Gentile Christians under the law and condemning them for not keeping the Jewish feast, dietary law, special holy days, i.e. the Sabbaths. But Paul the Apostle made it clear in the New Testament that believers in Christ are not subject to or under the law of Moses. I won't have you turn to these two, but listen. These are all over the New Testament. You can pull out verses. Galatians 3, verses 24 and 5. Paul said, therefore, the law was our tutor to bring us to Christ, that we might be justified by faith, not by the works of the law, but after faith has come, in other words, after you put your faith in Christ, we are no longer in need of a tutor. We don't need the law of Moses anymore if you're a Christian. If it brought you to Christ, it did its job. I'll show you what I mean in a moment. In Romans 10, verse 4, Paul says, For Christ, listen, is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. So if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, the Mosaic law does not apply to you anymore. Once the law has brought us to Jesus for his righteousness, it is no longer needed, it has served its purpose, and therefore it is to be jettisoned. Remember the uh, shuttle, space shuttle program? And of course, we've all seen the takeoffs, haven't we? The blastoffs on TV. And um, this, I don't know how many stories tall this thing you know, was, I don't know, 10, 14 stories, you know, on its, on its end, right? And it had the uh, giant liquid uh, uh, tank of, of fuel uh, uh, welded to its underside. And then you had, or attached, then you had on either side the two solid booster rockets that were used to propel the thing up into the atmosphere, right? And as you saw that, and we all have, how that at launch, the moment of launch, those, those the two booster rockets lit up and began to propel that giant space shuttle off the launching pad into the, uh, uh, into the sky and eventually into orbit, at which time what happened? The two booster rockets fell off. They were jettisoned. They were no longer needed. They, listen, had accomplished their purpose for existing. It was to drive that thing into the atmosphere. Once they finished their job, they were no longer needed. They were jettisoned. This is the law. This is exactly what we're talking about. God gave the law to Israel, but it applies really in some ways to everybody because nobody, think of the Ten Commandments, a lot of non-Jews try to get to heaven by keeping the Ten Commandments. And the idea was God never gave the law to make us righteous, only to propel us to Christ. How? By showing us we couldn't keep those laws. Nobody could keep those commandments perfectly every day of their life. And it wasn't just outward. Not that you literally killed somebody or, or literally committed adultery. If you lusted after a woman in your heart, Jesus said, you've already committed adultery in the eyes of God. If you've hated somebody in your heart. See, that counts too. That's just the outward actions but the inward attitudes. It all counts in God. He sees the heart, right? And so the idea is that if you're a Christian, you are no longer under the law of Moses. It, it has done its Listen, let me just say this, okay? When we say that, you know, as Christians now, the, the moral law was jettisoned. The law of Moses, Ten Commandments. Please understand what I'm saying. I'm not saying that God's moral law is to be jettisoned in the sense 
that it no longer needs to be followed in the practice of our daily lives as Christians, that we could now go on living lawless lives. There's a lot of people who think when they hear a guy like me teach this, that I'm saying, well, you know, we can, we don't have to observe any moral laws now. We're saved by grace. doesn't matter if you steal, lie, commit adultery. It doesn't matter. You're saved by grace. Now, look, anybody, and Paul addresses this in Romans, if you can say, let's sin that grace to be abound, you're not even a Christian. I mean, who would think that except some phony who thinks they're saved and has twisted Scripture to say, well, the Bible says I'm saved by grace. It's a gift. I don't earn it. So therefore, I don't have to worry about being moral, being, you know, I can commit adultery, blah, blah, blah. No, of course you can't. Because if the Holy Spirit is really inside of you, you're not going to want to live like that. Let's be honest. But what I'm not saying is that now as Christians, we just go on living lawless lives. I'm not saying that either. It is true that the law, think of the Ten Commandments again, was never intended to make us righteous, only to show us our guilt, which was then designed to drive us to Jesus for his righteousness. I mean, come on. We get so frustrated trying to keep laws to get into heaven, and the Jewish people, they, they live with these for, for many centuries and knew they weren't keeping the law. They were frustrated. And, uh, and so the idea is, look, you get so frustrated because you know you can't keep these laws. You know that they can't get you into heaven because they only condemn you. What does it do? It drives me to God on my knees and, says, and, and causes me to say, Lord, please, I, I can't be righteous by these laws. Is there any other way by which I can get into heaven? Here's Jesus, right? I am the way, the truth, and the life. Nobody comes to the Father except through me. But the law was never given to make us righteous. It was only to show us our guilt. Romans 3, if you wouldn't mind turning there real quick. I'll read to you out of the NLT, second edition, Romans 3, starting with verse 19. Paul said, obviously the law applies to those to whom it was given. For its purpose is to keep people from having excuses and to show that the entire world is guilty before God. Yeah, because everybody's broken God's laws. For no one can ever be made right with God. In other words, get into heaven by doing what the law commands. The law simply shows us how sinful we are. Amen. So once again, when I am in Christ, in other words, saved, I'm righteous because of Jesus' righteousness. Remember what Paul said in Philippians 3, verse 9? Our desire is to be found in Him. That's, that's where we want to be, by faith. To be found in Jesus, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in, in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith. So guys, again, the law was never intended by God to make us righteous. However, when it comes to daily Christian, Christian living, God's word, God's word teaches that once we give our hearts to Jesus and are saved, the Holy Spirit moves inside. And at that moment, he writes the laws of God on our hearts. Remember, from Sinai, God, with his finger, wrote the laws, his laws on tablets of stone, right? In the New Covenant, he writes them on the tablets of our hearts. Heart And the result is we become new creations in Christ. We now obey the commandments of God, listen, from the heart, out of love, which means the law of Moses with its punishments no longer applies 
to us. Turn to 1 Timothy 1. First Timothy chapter 1. Paul is talking about the law. And he said in verse 8, But we know, talking to a young pastor now, Timothy, but we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. In other words, if you use it to try to get into heaven, you're using it unlawfully. If you use the law as a mirror to look inside and say, well, I've broken every one of those laws, I'm guilty. Well, that's good. That's the, that's the purpose of the law, to show us our guilt. Not our goodness, our guilt. Paul says, look, the law is good. It, says it serves a purpose uh, in that it's supposed to bring sinners to face to face with their sin, their guilt. So it's good if one uses it lawfully, verse 9, knowing this, that the law is not, uh, is not made for a righteous person. A person who receives Christ is now righteous through Christ's righteousness. They don't, they're not under the law of Moses any longer. But it's made for the lawless, the insubordinate, the ungodly, for sinners, etc. Those are the folks who need laws to govern their behavior because as Christians, God's written his laws in our hearts. I don't want to steal. I don't want to lie. I don't want to commit adultery. I don't want to do any of those things. Why? Because I'm afraid of a punitive law that will bring punishment into my life? No. Because I love God. The Lord lives in my heart. I want to please him now. He's done so much for me, right? I want to, I want to just obey out of love. Okay, that's the difference. Guys, the old covenant with its written laws and external tablets of stone never affected the heart. Never affected the heart. In that regard, all those laws could do was compel the Jews to obey out of the fear of consequences. That's all any external law can do. If a person doesn't care about consequences, nothing's going to stop that person from doing evil. They don't care. But obedience based on fear was an inferior motivation than obedience based on love. And that's why God promised that in the old that the old covenant would someday be replaced with a better covenant. And I do want you to turn to this. I want you to, I want to read this to you. Hebrews 8. Hebrews chapter 8. This is important. And the writer, who I believe is Paul, goes all the way back into Jeremiah to pull something out that God had said that he was going to do eventually, even while the old covenant was in force, God promised a new covenant was coming. And so the writer picks up on this. And in verse 7 of Hebrews 8, he says, If the first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no need for a second covenant to replace it. But when God found fault with the people, Israel, he said, the day is coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and Judah. And of course, anyone who receives Christ, because they would also become a member of the new covenant. Verse 9, this covenant will not be like the one I made with their ancestors. When I took them by the hand and led them out of the land of Egypt, they did not remain faithful to my covenant. No, they broke it even before Moses got down from Sinai. They got the golden calf going. Okay. But uh, they, they broke it immediately. They did not remain faithful to the old covenant. So I turned my back on them, says the Lord. But this is the new covenant I will make with the people of Israel on that day, says the Lord. I will put my laws in their minds and write them on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. Verse 13, when God speaks of a new covenant, 
It means that he has made the first one obsolete and it, it is now out of date and will soon disappear. And of course, that happened on Calvary's cross. When Jesus shed his blood, a covenant means to cut. It speaks of a blood covenant. On the cross of Calvary, when Jesus uh, poured his blood out, the new covenant was ratified. The old covenant became obsolete. And so once again, as Christians, we are now in Christ. And as such, we are partakers of everything Jesus accomplished. He said in Matthew 5.17 that he came to fulfill the law, and certainly he did in every way possible. And because we are in him, we have fulfilled the law as well in the eyes of God. You say even the Sabbath? Yes, even the Sabbath, including the Sabbath. This is because, as we've already mentioned, the New Testament says that Jesus is our Sabbath rest. Read Hebrews 4. Which means as Christians, we are not, listen, we are not violating the Sabbath by not setting aside one day of the week to rest and worship God. You see, for us who are Christians under the new covenant, every day is a Sabbath that we keep by simply being in Christ. Every day is a day of worship and rest from our works to get us into heaven. Jesus did all the work, even as he said, I think in John 19, 30 or 31, it is finished. The work of salvation, redemption is done. And now to receive righteousness and go to heaven, you simply put your faith in Jesus. And we rest, once we do that, we rest in him and his completed work on our behalf. Guys, listen, and here's where we're going to make total application now. If there is a secret for living the Christian life with power and victory, this is it. Listen to me. If there is a secret... And it really isn't a secret because it's clearly spelled out in the New Testament. But a lot of Christians are ignorant to this, okay? If it's a secret, it's hidden in plain sight because God certainly didn't hide it. But if there is a secret for living the Christian life with power and victory, this is it. This is it. It's a powerful Sabbath lesson for living a transformed life. Look, the power... To live the Christian life doesn't come from a principle, but from a person, Jesus Christ. He won the victory on Calvary's cross. He vanquished principalities and powers, you know, the devil and his demons through his death and resurrection. And since we as Christians are in him, all the victory, all the power that we need to live the Christian life comes through him. Jesus Christ is omnipotent, which means he is, he's God. He's all-powerful. When Christians say, God, I need more power. I need more power, Lord. God is saying, you're in Christ. You're in my son. There is no, there, there is no more power than being all-powerful. You have all the power of God at your, at your resource uh, for your benefit. Anytime you want it, by faith, you can tap into it. You know, it's like we're, we're standing by an ocean. Think of it as God's power and and all that is ours in christ right and yet god says take as much as you want we walk up with a little thimble <laughs> dipping in there this is how most christians live their lives they just take little thimbles of god's grace power victory you know and, and he's got an ocean in front of them and, and we just we, we 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 don't make use of most of what god has promised us and and uh applied, you know, given to us in Christ. 
Guys, we don't need more power. We have everything we need by virtue of being in Christ. We just need to rest in Jesus, our Sabbath, and let him live his life through us by the power of his Holy Spirit. Even as Paul the Apostle said, pivotal verse, Galatians 2.20, Paul said, I have been crucified with Christ. The old life is gone. By faith I've crucified all that. I've been crucified with Christ, and I no, I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live in the body now, this life I'm living on the earth as a Christian, physically, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. In other words, to be all that God commands us to be in his word, we simply need to rest in Jesus, in his completed work and victory, to live his life through us by faith. Again, Paul said, the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God. Guys, it's faith. It's faith that releases the power of God into our lives. Listen, either to be saved or to live lives that honor him. It's all the power is there because we're in Christ. Now, how do you access that power? How do you make it your own? How do you make use of that? By faith. By faith. It's not by self-effort, hard work, strength of our own energy and flesh. It's by faith. You don't need to try harder. Listen to me. You need to abide longer in Christ. Abiding basically is an idea of resting in him drawing close to being in fellowship with him if you abide in christ which we'll talk about in great detail in chapter 15 if you look at jesus as your sabbath that you're resting in his work his victory he's won the he's won the battle if you just rest in him he's our sabbath and let him live his life through us by faith you will know immediate victory one author had this to say on the subject. He said, and I quote, Every Christian ought to read Hudson Taylor's Spiritual Secret by Dr. and Mrs. Howard Taylor because it illustrates this principle of inner power in the life of a great missionary to China. For many years, Hudson Taylor worked hard and felt that he was trusting Christ to meet his needs, but somehow he had no joy or liberty in his ministry. Then a letter from a friend opened his eyes to the adequacy of of Christ. Here's a guy who loved the Lord. He was uh, wanting to be a missionary in China. And, uh, you know, and I think he was on his way to China uh, on a ship. And a letter had come from a friend of his. He grabbed it real quick, threw it in his stuff. And on the way over, he opens his letter. Now, Hudson Taylor was, was just had a heart for God, but he had no power. No, nothing was happening, okay? And so he opens his letter, and his, and his buddy is explaining to him how he, this friend of his, had just been baptized with the Holy Spirit. That's what we're talking about. And the guy, was, as Hudson was reading this, he said, my eyes were opened. It, it clicked, basically. Here I'm trying, in my own strength, to be what God wanted me to be, and all I needed to do was look to Jesus. I mean, he did all the work. He's victorious. I mean, I don't have to try to be faithful. You understand what I'm saying? I just rest in the faithful one is what he goes on to say. The author said this was the turning point in his life. Moment by moment, he drew on the power of Christ for every responsibility of the day, and Christ's power carried him through, end quote. A while back, I reread a Christian classic entitled The Saving Life of Christ. Incredible book. If you can get it, read it. The Saving Life of Christ, written by Major Ian Thomas. 
he was a major in the British, uh, I forgot what it was, army or so on, but a dynamic Christian guy. And uh, in his book, Thomas makes this statement. He said, and I quote, There are many wonderful Christians. You would love to meet them. They talk all the language of salvation, and they mean every word they say. They're not hypocrites. But they're tired, many of them, desperately tired. God knows how tired they are, but they are not hypocrites. They are overwhelmed inwardly with a sense of defeat and frustration and futility and barrenness. Story after story could be told of men and women who go on and on and on, yet deep down in their hearts they are tired almost beyond endurance. Again and again they have gotten down by their bedside and cried out to God with tears in their eyes. God, you know how barren I am. You know how empty I am. You know how stale I am. You know it. And they do not know the answer. I wonder, are you like that, he asks. Well, Major Ian Thomas knew exactly what that was all about because for many years he himself was one of those Christians. And you can read about this if you get the little book, They Found the Secret, another incredible book, 20 biographies, some of the great men and women of God and their, how they became, got baptized with the Holy Spirit is the idea. But uh, Thomas said he just grew up in a Christian home. He loved the Lord with all his heart. He wanted to serve God and thought the best way to do it was to become a medical doctor. So he enrolled in a medical college. But uh, while he was on campus, he said, my whole week was packed. I just packed it solid with preaching and teaching and discipling and counseling. And, and I was just wanting to run around like crazy serving the Lord. But I came to a point of utter exhaustion and frustration, he said. His own testimony. He said, people, I preach in my heart, nobody's getting saved. I'm counseling, I'm discipling, nobody's changing. Finally, I got so frustrated, I said, I said to God, Lord, I'm, I'm done. I'm done. I mean, I, he wanted to be a missionary in Africa. He said, I'm, that's done. I'm, 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 you know, rejecting that idea. Now, if I can't affect people right here in the town I'm living in, I mean, crossing an ocean and putting on a pith element is not going to make me a soul winner. So I'm just done, Lord. Very frustrated, just, you know, just said, Lord, I, I'm, I'm a miserable failure. I, I just, I'm just going to stop it all. And he said, one night the Lord spoke to him. He said, I can honestly tell you, I had never heard this from any human being, but God spoke to me and gave me a teaching. And folks, it's what I'm teaching you right now. This is what basically God told him. You are trying to live the life only I can live through you. You're trying to live it in the energy of your flesh. No wonder you're tired. No wonder you're frustrated. No wonder you're desperate. You are trying to be in your own strength with only my son can do, can be in and through you, through his strength and power. No, I want you to, you're going to drop out of school. You, I know that you have a good heart. Why you want to be a doctor, you want to be a missionary, and that's good. But that's not what I'm calling you to do. You're a drop out of school immediately. I'm going to send you all over the world teaching Christians this truth. Wow. He said his life was radically transformed. Next day he was supposed to teach a bunch of young people. Never had much success with teaching young people about the Lord. Got up that morning just full of joy. On his way over he said, Lord, I'm not going to teach those kids today. You're going to teach them. You're, you're going to do it. He said it was amazing. The power and the response. Now people were responding. And every time I tried to take this truth and kind of make it a little complicated, the blessing stopped. Every time I just followed the simple concept of letting Jesus live his life through me and sharing that with others, God began to move. 
Incredible, he said, incredible. This is something he said from his book, The Saving Life of Christ. Continues the thought I mentioned earlier. He says, the carnal Christian is one who has received the Holy Spirit and all the fullness of Christ, yet ignores his presence and struggles to live the Christian life as though Christ were not there. He is the one who constantly begs and pleads for all that God has already given to him, but which he will not take. He is the one who will not step out in faith upon the glorious fact that Christ is his life and therefore his victory. The Christian life is an exchanged life. I give Jesus my life and he lives it through me. And then he quotes Galatians 2.20, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, uh, yet not I, but Christ lives in me. And then he ends this particular uh, chapter with this, uh, these words. He said, and I quote, Are you still in the wilderness? Then repudiate your unbelief. Start right now trusting the Lord Jesus for that which uh, his blood was shed, that he might live his resurrection life in and through you, even while you are still on the earth in that body, and thank him that he is your victory, that he is your strength, that he is your future, that he is all that you can ever need uh, at any time, in any circumstance, for, and then he quotes Colossians 2, for in him, in Jesus, dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. Omnipotence now resides within us. Everything we need, we have in Christ. We got appropriated by faith. Guys, we're done. Let me just say this. The Christian life is a supernatural, underline that, is a supernatural life. It's an exchange life. It's not a New Year's resolution, turn over a new leaf kind of life. That's, that's putting faith in the strength of your flesh, right? New Year's resolutions, this year I promise I'm going to, you know, well, God says, okay, fine, well, you know, Lord, I, things are going to be different this year. I'm going to stop smoking. I'm going to stop drinking. I'm going to get to church. I'm going to read my Bible every day. I'm going to do it, Lord. Okay, God says, go ahead and try. And when you fall on your face and you get so frustrated and broken and desperate, come back and talk to me. We'll Because then you'll learn what Paul said. When I'm weak, then I'm what? Strong. Strong, right? Look, either you're living in the power of the Holy Spirit, or you're living in the power of your own strength. You say, well, how do I know which one I'm operating in? How tired are you? How tired are you? Are you exhausted, discouraged, defeated, ready to give up? If so, you're probably living your Christian life in your own strength and not in the power of the Holy Spirit. In other words, you're not resting in Jesus as your Sabbath. Not that Christians who serve the Lord in the Spirit never get tired. I'm not saying that. It's a good tired. It's a good tired. It's tired in the work, not tired of the work. When I'm tired in the work, I fall into bed satisfied that I've served the Lord and can't wait till I get up next morning and start all over again. But if you're not serving the Lord in the Spirit and you're tired, you're probably tired of the work. You're frustrated, discouraged, depressed, wanting to give up. That's, that's when you know you're operating in your own strength, not in the power of the Holy Spirit. Once again, guys, let me state before we end. The Sabbath was never given to mankind as a universal law. It was only given to Israel under the Mosaic Covenant and therefore no longer applies to those who are under the new covenant in Christ. But just because the Sabbath as a law no longer applies to the people of God, listen, doesn't mean it shouldn't be observed as a principle. Let me read to you one quote, one more quote by a pastor, and we'll close. 
One pastor had this to say about the wisdom of observing the Sabbath as a practical principle rather than a punitive law. He said, and I quote, At the time the law was given, no culture had ever taken a day off of work. In agrarian societies, societies this would have been unthinkable. But here in the very beginning of time, he's talking about Genesis chapter 2 when God uh, you know, as he's already created this, the world's universe six days and seventh day rest, that's what he's talking about. But here in the very beginning of time, we see the institution of the Sabbath. But I don't, you, but you say, I don't need a Sabbath because I'm not tired, <laughs> you might be thinking. Gang, God wasn't saying, woof, am I beat? This creating stuff is really draining. No, he was saying to you and me, I'm your father. And here's a key to navigate life successfully. Shut it down one day in seven. But I can get ahead if I just do a little bit of work on the seventh day. As an observer, as a Bible teacher, as a pastor, I tell you with surety uh, that if you don't take a Sabbath day, it will catch up with you either mentally, emotionally, physically, or spiritually. I'm convinced many people have physical problems they wouldn't have if they took one day off in seven and said, I'm going to rest and relax and be refreshed and renewed. I'm convinced many people are seeing psychiatrists and taking pills because failing to take a Sabbath, they're just mentally fried. I'm convinced many people have collapsed spiritually because the weekend, fi weekend finds them revving up the, the ski boats rather than finding renewal and refreshment in the Lord. Be renewed, gang. I'm not saying what you should do or shouldn't do on the Sabbath day because that's where the Pharisees erred. Instead, I would just remind you that because God rested on the seventh day, we get to rest as well. The principle he modeled on the seventh day of creation continues to be a healthy one for us today. End quote. Amen? Father, we thank you, Lord, for your word. We thank you, Lord, that sprinkled throughout your word are wonderful promises and precious principles. That, Lord, if we just understand, first of all, all that is ours in Christ, we would be overwhelmed by the enormity. And if we also knew how little we actually benefit from, we'd be discouraged and even brokenhearted that you've given us so much, but we really enjoy so little. Lord, give us grace to start drawing deeply on all that is ours in Christ. Give us faith, Lord, to uh, walk in the Spirit, to, um, by faith, trust you to do in our lives what only you can do. Lord, tomorrow, if somebody, uh, at one point the devil says, why don't you pour yourself a drink? You know, you like those martinis or whatever. Lord, give us grace and strength to say, Lord Jesus, I, I, I'm no match for this temptation. Please, live your life through me right now. And the Lord's grace and strength will be ours. And this goes for anything, Lord. Give us grace as we walk through life and realize what the devil is going to try to tempt us to do. That, Lord, when the devil comes knocking, we just send you, Lord, to answer the door. Give us grace to do that. We don't have to be defeated. We don't have to be um, in bondage to anything. Was Jesus Christ, the almighty, omniscient, omnipotent God, lives in us by the Holy Spirit. Give us grace, Lord, to understand that, to live it, and uh, be blessed by it. Father, we ask all this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.